Hi folks, you're back, I'm back, and today we're going to have a little party. I'm talking to Margot Lasher. She is an author and licensed psychologist. She has published three books and many of her plays have been produced by theaters throughout New York and New England. Before we dive in, if you are a process lover and you've been listening for a while and really enjoy the episodes that I put out, please consider writing a review and rating this show. It will really help us get the word out. And if you could spend just 30 seconds giving us a little bit of love online, it would really mean so much to us. I know you're going to love this episode and there's a lot of juicy stuff to dig your teeth into. Get ready to get inspired. Here's my conversation with Margot Lasher. So I often like to start, well, actually, before I, before I ask any questions, I just want to say that I'm here with my grandma, <laughs> which is really special. And um, she has like been a huge influence for me over the years and also just has been like a place of creative safety for me. So I'm really excited to talk to you and get a sense of like, how you've structured your life around your creative work, because I know you have. So my first question for you is, when you think of creative process, what comes to mind for you? Writing. Hmm. Just writing? Not always, but usually there's something that I've thought of you know, when I was asleep or, you know, when I was doing the dishes or there's something on my mind and I I then decide to get it down Hmm. on paper or on the computer now, used to be on paper. I'm processing my own thoughts and putting them into words, which is really a translation. Mm. This is like, okay, this is also sort of recent that I've understood this. By recent, I mean the last six, seven years. You know, I don't mean yesterday. Right, right. (laughs) But um, I, I had a stroke. And one of the things that happened it was a very mild stroke. It, it was a thalamic stroke, whatever, you know, that means. But, <laughs> it, you know, I, it wasn't like half of my body was paralyzed or anything like that. I, I could walk. I could, you know. Okay. So one of the things that I lost, and I've kept it lost, <laughs> it hasn't... <laughs> returned, you know, it's gotten better, but was the ability to just come up like that with the right word. Oh, yeah. And it's very interesting, the the mind, it's so interesting, because, um, you know, you would think that I would lose difficult words. <laughs> right. But you know, I could I f- could forget how to say bread mm. or bug. You know, right. I, and so I I realize now when I write that 
I'm kind of translating a thought into words hmm. and it's very not very but it's a little arbitrary because <laughs> you know I I might come up with a word that's close but not exactly the same as the word of the thought and you know like if I were Chinese I, I might be I would come up with a different word that was right. maybe closer or maybe further apart right, you know right 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 huh so when you're writing you're taking it's almost like you're taking like the truest thing and making it a little bit less true but you're yeah. so that you can communicate it right kind of right hmm. and i never before the stroke i don't think i would have thought that i would have i would have immediately come up with a word so that there wasn't that time lapse huh and then i would have assumed that it was the right word you know yeah yeah that's fascinating so like the gap in time is what has yeah shown you this this translation thing right wow that's really interesting what's your origin story for for writing how did you come across it okay now this i knew you were going to ask me so i <laughs> kind of rehearsed this in my mind great perfect so I was writing as soon as I was talking, I, you know, three years old, two years old, however I old, yeah. I have always written. Hmm. I never stopped. You know, people have what, what they call writer's block. I've never had that. <laughs> I mean, I might not write for a long time, you know, a long time being several months or something right. but it it's not because I can't or I'm blocked it's because I'm thinking about what the, pl the next play is going to be like thinking about the structure or whatever I'm thinking about I, I think that you've you've asked other people yeah <laughs> why did you become a writer or how did you become a writer I, I was just born it just was it just was and i never questioned it mm. i never thought oh i should um i should be trying to get a job or i mean sometimes i had to get a job for money i don't mean that but i mean i never like thought of substituting being a writer with something else hmm so did you think of being a writer as an identity? Like, okay, maybe I'm thinking about it too hard, but it sounds like you just wrote and you didn't analyze it at all. Right. I didn't analyze it. And you just it. always did that. And yeah. you always thought of it. It sounds like you separated your writing, which was so natural, from a job that makes money. Did you ever put any pressure on the writing to make any money? I tried. Okay? Really? Yeah. I was thinking about this just yesterday because I was like preparing myself for the interview. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so one time I wrote something for the New Yorker. Really? 
really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And it was rejected. Oh, you know? oh I see. I see. You, you yeah. wanted it to be in the... Okay. But I mean, I changed it for that magazine. And another time, I actually can't remember the topic, <laughs> <laughs> but I knew that Time magazine was interested in a certain topic. And I wrote an article for them, and the same thing, it was rejected. I'm not going to try to remember the different times, but I, I did try. Yeah. And the only, okay, this is kind of amusing. Okay. <laughs> um, when I was teaching at Assumption, uh-huh. the, the department, the psychology department, was often under attack from the priests who ran the college because, you know, we, we had such different philosophies about, you know, life and morals and stuff. Right. And we often had to write letters, you know, defending some point of view that the department was taking. Hmm. And the other people in the department, you know, they would spend days trying to get the first draft of a letter, revising, <laughs> and, and finally I just took over <laughs> and I wrote the letter. I mean, it was nothing for me. And I, you know, had this job of writing the letters for the department from then on. But, you know, I, I could, I mean, the point of this is I yeah, could yeah. change my style mm -hmm. if I needed to. Right. But I, I rarely did that with creative work that was my own. I mean, once in a while, okay, I have to admit that with the plays, because I started writing plays with street theater right. in the anti-Vietnam War, but then I didn't write plays for a long time. And when I went back to it, I realized I was not terribly successful, by the way. <laughs> but I did change certain things because the people who read the plays and decide which ones they're going to produce have certain... It, well, you know from music, they yeah. have an idea in their head of what they're looking for. For sure. And if you don't fit in, they just, it's yeah. gone. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I guess, how do you find that balance between thinking about that aspect and then just writing your own stuff and not caring? Okay, now, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't change anything. But there was a time when I really wanted to be produced, yeah. you know? So let's go back to, you were always writing, you just naturally did it. You went to college. Did you write while in college too? Yes. The yes. whole time? And then you graduated college. What happened after college? Like what was the kind of... I don't know, you can talk about it however you want, but yeah. what was your decision-making process at that point? You grew up in a very different time period than I did. Very different. It was so different. 
I think that after college, oh, <laughs> I got married. You got married, right. I right. got married after my junior year. Oh, wow, you hadn't even graduated yet. Yeah. And that was also expected, right? Yes. Hmm. And then we left for Taiwan. Rick got a Ford Fellowship to study Chinese law, and he, he had to learn Chinese, and we went to Taiwan. I also took a a course in Chinese before going there. Hmm. And then I had Soren, your had father. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I came back, the anti-war was starting and I immediately got into that and I eventually left Rick. Right, so when you went to Taiwan, that wasn't up to you. It wasn't like I didn't want to go and I was being pulled because of my husband. I I was kind of excited by that. Hmm. And I got a job teaching. I was teaching American literature. That's so cool. On Taiwan at wow. Taiwan Normal University. And then we we went to Hong Kong because of him again. But that was exciting. Yeah. And, you know, Hong Kong was just great. It was very exciting and in those days. And this was in the days. 60s, too. So oh, yeah. Very yeah. interesting time to be there. Yeah, it was very interesting. Hmm. There was a, a sign in one of the parks that said, No Chinese or dogs allowed. In the, Hong the Kong? British, <gasps> the British. Wow. Were really colonial crazy and we we had an apartment rented from a Chinese woman she was a wealthy Chinese you know it was a beautiful apartment in a up on the hill hmm. but still it was Chinese right and we had an ama who she left, she left her maid. <laughs> oh my gosh. To take care of the house, really. That's why she left it. But she yeah. she fell in love with Soren, who was oh, a baby. And I'm sure. She was wonderful. And I I would have stayed on Taiwan if I had had a little bit more courage. Really? I would have, I mean, at Hong Kong. Hong I would Kong, have yeah. stayed with her. Hmm. But it took me another year or so to work up the courage to to leave hmm. to leave Rick yeah yeah, yeah. but so, I yeah. knew I knew even then hmm. that, that that was what I had to do that I, I I just wasn't marriage was just the wrong thing for me hmm. so when you got back to the US how did you start to use writing in that context in the context of the anti-Vietnam okay so, again, Rick got a, um, a fellowship to the Adlai Stevenson Institute at the University of Chicago. Okay. And so I went to Chicago with him. <laughs> and we, we, were, we were in Cambridge at Harvard for two years. 
I got friendly. First it was the, believe it or not, because <laughs> it was the Harvard Divinity School students. Oh. Okay. okay. They were starting a group. See, the the whole point, the the um, the point of street theater was to get the American people in favor of ending the war mm -hmm. and to create plays, you know, short little plays that um, educated people, entertained them, but also taught them and got them to change their mind. We, we were brought up I I was born at the beginning of World War II. <laughs> okay, wait, wait. You were born at the beginning of World War II. Yeah, 1939. Okay. That's so crazy. Okay. And we were, um, what's the word? Uh, patriotic. Mm. We thought that we would, we weren't against the United States, we were against the the leaders of you know of the country at that right. point that right. had gone into the war but you know our whole thing was that we were going to change the leadership by having as many ordinary people like our parents and you know, our friends and everybody to to be against the war and then they would change. It was very democratic Interesting. and patriotic and everything. Huh. And um, of course it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, the war did, we did. So, so, yeah, so you're saying it was a very, you loved the U.S. as a country I don't know, loved maybe, okay, maybe is too loved strong, is strong, but... You had um, faith in... Yeah, we had faith the in the country. Mm. And I started creating little tiny scripts, you know, for the Harvard... Divinity School, Divinity School students. Wow! <laughs> And then we went to Chicago. Interesting. And I joined what we called Rapid Transit, which okay. was a very crazy, you know, street theater group. It was very different from the, you know, Divinity School students. It was, you know, the guys were playing the guitar and, mm -hmm. you know, were totally on pot we called it right, grass right. pot uh -huh. you know all the time <laughs> and then there were sometimes three but usually just two women mm. I was one of them there was Soren who you know was by now around three years old and there was another boy whose mother was a single woman and he was very 
talented and you wanted to join and she said yes wow and he took care of Soren a lot wow. you know I mean because the two of them would go and do something and you know hmm. so he he was really my helper a lot yeah and but also when we started traveling he his mother said yes it's fine you know she <laughs> she just was relieved to be right. away from him for a while and he came with us when we traveled uh hmm. We, we traveled all over the Midwest. Wow, so, okay, so... And to New York, we came back to New York, too. Oh, wow. Did you have a rehearsal thing? Bef like, oh, yeah. Did you have rehearsals before you started traveling? Or was yeah. It yeah. And we had performances in the Chicago area. Mm, okay. And then we went, you know, to Southern Illinois and back, and, you know, we went locally, or not that far, and... And then we started traveling. Was the idea to always travel? That was always the idea? Or was that no. kind of organically evolved? Yeah, yeah. And the guys, I never knew anybody, but, but the guys, they, they were very talented. They were talented musicians, and they knew people. Mm -hmm. They knew other musicians. And so they had contacts. So, for example, you know, there'd be like the University of Nebraska, I'm just making this up. Yeah. Th they would know a musician who was there. He could put us up for the night and make sure that there was an audience. And mm -hmm. so, you know, so we, we were street theater, but we also did some stuff inside auditoriums or, you huh. know, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and we were paid by donations and pot. <laughs> and yeah. that was enough to sustain you for the tours? Yeah, wow. yeah. We didn't have any expenses except gas to mm. drive there. I see. We had People a would big, feed you. Oh, yeah, we had a huge yellow bus <laughs> that we, you know, it was, it was the, the cliches, all of the cliches. <laughs> Wait, who purchased the bus? Do you remember? <laughs> I'm just curious, like, how the bus came mm, I, I think that someone donated someone it. Someone just, oh my god. Yeah, we, we got donations. Hmm. I mean, we, we never worried about money. Hmm. At least I never did. Yeah, yeah. I, I never did. I mean, I don't think anybody did. No, nobody did. I mean... They were too stoned to worry <laughs> about anything. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, you said it didn't work. Because what do you mean by that? Uh, like, the Vietnam War did end at some point, but it just yeah. you think that the efforts didn't do much? I think they helped, the efforts. I yeah. think they helped. But what happened was a subset of the anti-war people mm -hmm. started practicing violence mm. and it, it that didn't work i mean i, I don't yeah. blame them they were projecting what the united they were americans projecting what 
the United States was doing to the Vietnamese, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, right. you know, they, they were bombing um, draft houses, mm -hmm. draft places where they draft men right. for the war. And, and a couple of people who I knew died in a, one of the bombs they were making went off accidentally inside of a basement. Whoa. And I knew those people. When, when those people had come to Chicago, they had used my apartment as a place to meet. Wow. Because I wasn't on the, you know, list of, I, I wasn't known to this police or anything. Hmm. So it was a safe apartment, and it, it was very difficult that time. Mm. I, I never, I mean, I, my mother was a pacifist, and I always followed her lead politically. I, I yeah. was, and I, so I never was into violence, but I, I wasn't into blaming them either. It was... Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. These were like, they weren't like great <laughs> right. works of art. They were like right, right. little skits, you know, yeah. that lasted like maybe a half hour at the most, usually mm -hmm. like 15 minutes or so, you know. But it's interesting because you kept writing in that genre. Yeah. Later, so I'm curious if, if it just, if that genre like, made you feel like you could communicate something more or if it was just familiar you know like plays versus short stories or essays or whatever yeah but you also do other things too but okay so the getting back to writing yes <laughs> back to writing. so when i was younger mm -hmm. i i wrote poetry mm -hmm. mostly poetry I never, one time I wrote a novel, a short novel, which was never published. And I, I think I tried, I know I tried. But I, the, I was never into wordiness. Mm. I think to write a novel, you have to put out a lot of words. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you have to describe things. Uh -huh. You've set up a whole uh, world. You set up a whole the world yeah. of the novel. There's dialogue, potentially, yeah. Well, everything. Guess, There's everything. Yeah. And theater, for me, was, was a way, it was what I would naturally go to because it was just dialogue and there was a lot of there could be a lot of silence, hmm. you know, depending upon the director and the actors to, you know, explain or, you know, to express the, the feelings going on. Yeah. So there could be silence, there could be very short dialogue. Hmm. So that, that was natural to me. So when you, so when you're writing a, something, are you imagining someone performing it? Or is it more of you're just translating what's in your head? 
Okay, it's both. It's both. Uh, yeah. Okay, first I translate what's in my head, and then I revise, and then I'm imagining someone performing it. Uh, this is very recent. Okay. Okay. Uh, a couple, a married couple, where, where the husband and wife are both actors from New York, moved up to Vermont. And I got to know them, it doesn't matter how. And I had this monologue, monologue called The Fox. And um, I wanted one of them to do it because I wanted a lot of nonverbal motion mm. in this monologue. It was about me kind of having this revelation by meeting a fox. This actually happened, it was a real happening. It was coming out of the cornfield hmm. around our house. And I knew that it had to be done by a good actor because the motion on stage was the more important or just as important as the dialogue. And so um, Dominique, that mm -hmm. was his name, agreed to do it. He really liked it and he, he was going to do it. And I would imagine him doing it. But often I can't, it'd be, it's really nice to imagine a real actor. Right. It's very helpful. But mm. often I can't do that. So then I sometimes imagine myself, uh -huh. if it's a woman, you know, uh -huh. or I just imagine a shadowy figure. Uh -huh. Huh. I don't imagine the face, no. But the body, the body, okay, moving, yes. So I actually wanted to ask you about this. So you have been a dancer, uh, you are, are a dancer? I don't know. Like you, you're a movement yeah. practitioner. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you do qigong now, and you were right very close to being a professional ballet dancer when you were younger. How does that? understanding of movement tie-in. You're talking about it already, but yeah. just can you talk more about that, tying that in with your writing? Okay. It's very, very important to me in the writing of plays. Not so much anything else. Mm. You know, what? Uh, this is kind of interesting. One of the things that um, younger playwrights have to get over is that feeling of giving up their baby, you know. <laughs> mm. But it was never hard for me because, mm. well, first of all, because I, you know, did for about two years, I did street theater. Right. So <laughs> that helped a that lot. That kind of primed you for yeah. that. Yeah. But also, I'm very... Um, glad to give the dialogue over to a director and actors because I want movement on the stage. I don't want two people talking, you know, the way 
I mean, there aren't very many plays where only two people sit and talk, but right. there are. Right. There are some, mm -hmm. and I, that's not me, you know, it's right. not what I want. What is so important about the silence, just in general, in, in, in general? What is so important about silence? It's really important to me. <laughs> <laughs> Our whole culture is just noisy. Mm. I can't stand it. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not really ready to die, I, uh, to be honest, you know. Uh -huh. I, I'm not ready. Mm. But sometimes I feel, oh my God, you know, I, I can't. And it, it wasn't this way when I was growing up or in my 20s. Well, in my 20s, I was on Taiwan, mm, right. where silence was very much respected and part of the culture. Hmm. And then, I, I don't know, we've gotten noisier and noisier here. Yeah. And it, it's like, it's sometimes it's, it's just like filling up space. It's, it's pointless, worthless. It's <sighs> so true. Yeah. Sounds like it's also tiring for you. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, it is. Let's kind of circle back. So I, I want to talk about animals. I don't really know how to breach this topic, but because it's so big. But um, I'll just say a brief context. So you write a lot about the relationship between humans and dogs and humans yeah. and animals and animals and animals um, and Unfortunately, that's a very unique perspective. Um, it shouldn't be so unique, but it is. What excites you about that? Like, what stirs you up enough to write about that? I, I always felt really close to animals. But I also had... First, I... I had a boyfriend, then I was married, <laughs> then I had more boyfriends, <laughs> you know. I, I had like, you know, I had partners. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, you know, a, a one-night stand or anything, right. but I had quite a few of them <laughs> over <laughs> 80 years. Right. <laughs> and, um, and then there was a certain point at which I, I just was tired of it. Mm -hmm. I I didn't want any more sex. <laughs> I I liked the idea of becoming celibate, hmm. but it wasn't just the sexual thing. I I I was tired of the compromises that you have to make. You ha and you you know you do you have to make okay. Yeah, for sure. And I realized it it was a growing thing. It didn't happen overnight or anything. But I realized that <laughs> <laughs> my dogs could be wonderful substitutes mm. for a human partner. I mean, 
the fact that they didn't talk didn't bother me at all. <laughs> right. You love silence. Exactly. It was perfect. And I I realized that I had the same kinds of feelings toward them. Deep feelings of attachment. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. And the dog, I mean, this, this, you know, would definitely be true of a cat or a bird, you know, a, a parrot, a large bird that you, or it doesn't have to be large, but a bird that you became really close to. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, it's not, it's not just that you have the feelings, but the, the animal has the feelings toward you. Mm-hmm. Right, it's a, it's a connection. It's a connection that is, you know, the feedback loop mm-hmm. keeps going. And so I, I became even more interested and I, I, I actually started writing about it. I, I, you know, this goes back to your your question much earlier, and I'd forgotten about it. I wrote a couple of books. Oh, you did? Yeah, true. I should have mentioned that. <laughs> well, but I mean, I forgot it too, because mm-hmm. of course I had to change the way I wrote mm. to fit, you know, a book that would be publishable, you right. know, chapters and... Right, right. Yeah. 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 And that was very tiring. It was... A, I, I never want to do that again. Interesting. But do you think it was worth it though to get it out? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was worth it. Especially the last book. Actually the last two books. The last two books because So you have you that have... the title was uh suggested by an editor. Okay. And it's from the Bible. Oh, that makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah, isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Yeah. So it's, and the animals will teach you. And it's it's a quote from the Bible. I don't remember uh-huh. where. She told me, of course, but right. I forgot. That's fascinating. Yeah. And then the the last book is Dog's Pure Awareness. Well, Dog Pure. I think it's just Dog. Dog yeah. Pure Awareness. Okay. <laughs> I don't know the title of my book, but anyway. It's all good. Yeah. Who needs to know that? Right. <laughs> and in that last one, I really went into um, the the dog's awareness of you, not mm. just your mm. awareness of the dog. The dog you know? psychology. Yeah. Because you have a P- We didn't mention this either because there's so much, but yeah, you yeah. have a PhD in psychology. Just right, to throw that right. out there. Yeah. From Columbia. Yeah. Um, so that's like, you actually have, you're not just like spouting out random no. knowledge. Like you actually have yeah. this knowledge of psychology and then you're putting it right. to use. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Okay. So then just to get all the books in here, you, then the first one you wrote was the art and practice of empathy and compassion. Yes. And that was just, that was to make money, which I never did, but mm. it could have though. I've read it. It could have made money for yeah. sure. Yeah. They went out of business. Ah. They, they were going to have a whole oh, yeah. thing, the art and practice of. I see. And 
then the the guy who was heading the whole thing I don't know whether he died or got very sick or something but they ended that and yeah, oh, yeah. I had yeah. I had really bad luck with making money yeah it's interesting but Through fortunately it never bothered me yeah we've talked about a lot but I want to make sure that you kind of like say what you want to say so is there are there things that we haven't touched on that you really want to say no 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 okay, okay. so you are in your 80s you're still getting published uh, sorry I guess published isn't the right word you're still getting your plays produced yeah very little but, but you are but I am uh, yeah you get them into festivals or for readings or actual yeah. performances on stage right what is the point of continuing mm. I know you know this deep down like in your core but yeah for people listening like why are we doing this oh god making, why are we making stuff still <laughs> what a good question <laughs> <laughs> Because you could just be, like, lounging around on your couch. Yeah. If you wanted to be. I was kind of born to do this. Mm. Like, you have this... You were born with this incredible musical talent. So to give it up at the end just just because you're 80. <laughs> it just seems, um, okay, I'm just going to say it seems selfish. Ooh, interesting. That is not, I could, had no idea what you were about to say, but I didn't think you were going to say selfish. I, I, for some reason, that's the word that popped into my mind. And yeah. and it, it seems like the right word. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like the wrong word popped in. No, I think in. that is the right word. Yeah. I, yeah. It seems like this is this is your calling. Mm. Like becoming a priest or a nun mm. or a, I I I don't you know, I don't have any other answer no, because yeah. that makes it sound too holy or something, but I mean that's the only thing that it's the only answer that comes to me. No, I think it makes sense because it's like no matter how much you are tired of the world and you hate the noise and you're frustrated by whatever, society, cultural norms, whatever, like we're still in it. Yeah. We're still here. Yeah. And if we just shut down and stop doing the thing that we're meant to be doing, I mean, you can so shut down for a while. Mm -hmm. You could shut down for a year. You could go and become a Buddhist nun, you know, in a cave for two years or whatever. But eventually, if you come back, that's your, that's your job, your role mm. in life. I love that. I think that's a great. I think that's a great way to end. Okay. Um, but good. You, but if you want to, <laughs> I'm your granddaughter. Yeah. Do you have any advice for me right now? <laughs> By the way, people who are listening, I've been asking my grandma for advice since, <laughs> since I, you know, since I started becoming yeah. confused about things, which was probably around puberty. 
but um so this is a normal occurrence but no i'm i'm not going to give you any advice now <laughs> no <laughs> okay that's fine i guess i know what i'm doing uh, i i think you know what you're vaguely. doing i think you do i think you know what you're doing okay Honestly, I really do. I know what I'm doing. I, I mean, you know, you can waver off the path mm. Mm. for a while, but you'll come back. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. So maybe my advice to myself is to not worry so much about wavering off the path. Yeah, yeah, right. Because I'll always know where it is. Yeah. As always, all of the info about Margot Lasher, including all three of her books and her plays, is in the show notes. And don't forget to rate and review the process. Even if you just write one word, that would really make a huge difference. We have an amazing team of editors, including Jessica Liu and myself, and we are definitely looking to expand and put out more episodes for you. So every piece of engagement online really helps us continue to make our vision for the Process Podcast a reality. So thank you so much for taking the time to write reviews. I wanted to share a review. This one's from Hogan. This one's called A Community of Artists. Sienna has a way of connecting to the artists so that we get a really honest, thoughtful conversation. I learned that there is a community of artists who face the same problems and think about the same things, like how to be authentic in our strange culture. If you are not a musician, you learn how complex the recording and videos of your music can be. This podcast is wonderful. Thank you so much, Hogan. We really appreciate you. The process is presented in partnership with Rochester Groovecast. This podcast is edited by Jessica Liu and Sienna Facciolo, produced by Sienna Facciolo. Our theme music is written and performed by Sienna Facciolo, Chris Palace, and Jordan Rabinowitz, featuring Sally Louise on guitar. Mixed by Chris Palace, mastered by Jet Galindo. Thank you so much, and see you soon. Bye.